1: Welcome to the Peter King podcast, an early March edition of the podcast and a lot going on. I'm going to be joined in a a moment by Paul Burmeister, uh, my friend from NBC Sports, and we're going to discuss some of the current events. Then we'll get into conversations that I've had with Matt LaFleur, the Green Bay Packers coach, and the rookie general manager of the Detroit Lions, Brad Holmes, um, but, Paul, let me just give you a couple of observations I had on Dak Prescott. Number one, you know, I'll never forget after the Super Bowl, I guess now it was uh, uh, eight, eight years ago, seven or eight years ago, when basically Joe Flacco of the Baltimore Ravens bet on himself. He uh, basically wanted to play out his contract. And told the Ravens, hey, listen, if I bet on myself and I win, I'm going to hit the jackpot. And if I don't, hey, you might decide to let me go and not re-sign me uh, after my contract expires. And he won the Super Bowl. He was the Super Bowl MVP and got paid a contract that averaged $20 million a year. Well, now here we are eight years later. And so what has happened? The contract for the top quarterbacks in the NFL has now doubled with the news that Dak Prescott has signed a 4-year 160 million contract extension 160 million dollar contract extension. And what I think is most notable about this basically because I don't think fans care about guarantees and and you know average value all that stuff there's two important things here. Number one, quarterbacks stand alone in the NFL economic empire. They just do, and they always will. Um, it, it, right now, we've got three quarterbacks, basically, uh, Dak Prescott, Patrick Mahomes, and uh, Deshaun Watson, who are right in that $40 million a year, uh, give or take a few million average. And so... This means, essentially, that the price that the NFL values quarterbacks at has doubled in the span of eight years. And it also means, in my opinion, that there will continue to be quarterback hopscotch. You know, the next great quarterback, you know, is going to use these contracts to hopscotch. No one would say that Dak Prescott is better Uh, than, in my opinion, uh, either Patrick Mahomes. I think he's close to Deshaun Watson, but I think people would say Watson is a more valuable quarterback. So that's one thing. And I think the one other thing is, you know, when I hear money terms like this, I just sort of glaze over. It matters to agents, and it matters, of course, to players how much they're going to make. But to me, the big news is, Dak Prescott is going to be where he belongs. He's going to be the the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys for the next four seasons at least. Paul, your thoughts?
2: I think this is truly one of the contracts where both teams win. The player won, and I think the team wins as well for maintaining a quarterback who is, he's not top three or top four like you talked about, but he's a top 10 quarterback in the league. And this is what a new contract will look like for any top 10 quarterback right now. Peter, my thoughts go right to that scene last October when there were tears from Dak Prescott and his teammates. He was being wheeled off the field. And this best case scenario for Dak seemed like a million miles away. It kind of felt like this was going to be a cold, hard, ugly truth of the NFL and injuries that we see sometimes tied into the franchise tag that a player who deserved to get paid big time money wasn't going to get there, at least with this team. and. It's a bottom line business. It'll all be about his production, but I enjoy the moment when you compare it to what we felt for him last year. And he wins and the team wins, and it didn't seem real likely last fall.
1: Yeah. You know, the other part of this, the reason that I think that this really happened the way it happened, you know, I'll never forget last year. I forget who tweeted it, tweeted it, but On Monday, after Dak Prescott got hurt on that October Sunday in Dallas against the Giants or in Arlington against the Giants, one of the buildings, one of the tall buildings in downtown Dallas had lights on forming the number four. And I remember seeing that and just saying to myself, what athlete, not only in Dallas, honestly, but in the state of Texas. What athlete is the most popular and probably the most important athlete to his team right now in the state of Texas? You think of the hockey and basketball and baseball and football teams in the state of Texas and obviously Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and there's no single person, in my opinion, in this hugely important state for professional sports. There's no single person who was as important to his team as Dak Prescott was to the Dallas Cowboys. And I just thought that that was going to mean something to Jerry and Stephen Jones, the brain trust of the Cowboys. And I really thought this day was going to come even after that serious injury. And Paul, I totally get your points on this, that essentially when you think about this story Uh, What we have seen now is just the pure value of the important quarterback, the very good quarterback as a player and as a person to his team uh, in the sport of football right now. And that's what this contract seems to me is about.
2: Do you think there's any kind of intangible credit going forward for the Cowboys organization, whether it's free agency wise or or how they might play this season where they, they did things the right way. They took care of a player who, as you mentioned, was so well-respected and loved in his locker room and in his city, in his state, that maybe that'll not only pay off with how Dak plays out on the field, but how other players in their locker room and others maybe considering to come to that locker room, consider this team.
1: You know, among the players in the NFL, among players, uh, the most respected players in the NFL, I think Dak Prescott has got to be in the top 10. So I do think the fact that the Jones family has really kind of, uh, has basically said to its fan base and to its locker room, Dak Prescott is going to be here for a long, long time. I think it's vital for the future of the Cowboys in this locker room and with this fan base.
2: Quarterbacks, uh, this is just one domino to fall. There are so many great stories out there, Uh, free agent-wise, potential trades, uh, all the draft rankings go on. Once you get past Dak and the Cowboys and kind of line this up to what's going on around the league with veteran quarterbacks and the rookies-to-be coming into the league, what's your next thought with quarterbacks right now?
1: I mean, probably two things. I'm getting two feelings about the veteran quarterbacks who may be available or may not be available. And I wrote about uh, both of these things in Football Morning in America this week. But, you know, you really started to hear a drumbeat for Russell Wilson uh, to the Chicago Bears. It's one of the teams he has listed now that another of the teams he has listed, Dallas, is, is out of the market for a quarterback. Now you look at there's three teams left, and one of them was Chicago. And I just went through it this week. I looked at their roster. I looked at their pro football focus rankings for the year on all their players, and I just do not see any sort of equitable match between the Seahawks and the Chicago Bears because even if you were to say, that, uh, okay, let's take the best player on the Bears, Khalil Mack, and let's trade Khalil Mack and the current quarterback, who you think would be the quarterback opening day, Nick Foles, and you pair that with two first-round picks. You know, the first-round pick this year, which is 20th overall, which would give Seattle a first-round pick, which it currently doesn't have, and a first-round pick next year. And let's just ask the basic question. Can the Seattle Seahawks replace Russell Wilson with a like quarterback or with a like quarterback prospect with that trade? And I don't see how anybody could say the answer is yes unless John Schneider harbors this secret uh, passion for, say, Mac Jones or a quarterback that might be available in the second half of round one. And that's the first part of it. The second part is – I believe that one of the reasons that John Schneider was so aggressive in trading for Jamal Adams is he knew that there was going to be such uncertainty in the 2021 draft because of all the people who opted out and because that uh, no NFL scout got on campus this year for any player. So you've got all these top prospects, the two top tackle prospects will enter draft day having not played a football game in almost 500 days. And you know, so you look at all of this kind of stuff, and you say, "Why in the world?" Plus, the the Seahawks would have to take a gigantic, thirty nine million dollars or whatever cap hit uh, for trading Russell Wilson in the middle of his lucrative contract. It just seems silly, and and I, I just don't place any stock in it, quite honestly. Other than dream scenarios, which I just don't see. And the second thing is. I just keep hearing from people he knows well in the league that Joe Douglas is is probably more likely than not to, you know, to not trade for Deshaun Watson for a very simple reason. He loves draft choices. He loves building team, his team through the draft. He's got a huge number of high picks. He's in the most advantageous position of any general manager in the next 14 months to build his team through the draft, if he either keeps the number two overall pick this year, or trades down a little bit to get maybe two ones and in a in, in and in a second round pick, uh, he's in great position to either keep Sam Darnold or even trade Sam Darnold, say for another second round pick, and to try to get his quarterback of the future this year or next year. So, I think that my two takeaways on the current quarterbacks is that I can't see Russell Wilson going to Chicago and I can't see Deshaun Watson at least right now going to the Jets.
2: Let's keep connecting those dots on the quarterbacks and you mentioned Joe Douglas GM of the Jets and how well positioned they are draft pick wise draft capital to make a huge move Two first round picks this year three next year it certainly would make sense to to trade for Deshaun Watson because they are so well equipped to do so If Joe Douglas doesn't like that scenario, let's let's go down that road of maybe trading Sam Darnold. You think a second round pick is something they could get for the former number one?
1: I think right now, if I'm San Francisco sitting there with the 43rd pick, I would trade for Sam Darnold even if I kept Jimmy Garoppolo. And what you say to Jimmy Garoppolo is, hey, nothing personal. Over the last three years, you've only played half the games. So we need to make sure that if you're not there, we can do better than C.J. Beath or Nick Mullins. And so that is why if I was San Francisco, that would be good value for me to put uh, Sam Darnold in with Kyle Shanahan. And then let's see what happens with Jimmy Garoppolo. Maybe they hang on to Garoppolo. Maybe they don't. We'll see. But I think he's probably worth a pick in the first 12 to 15 picks of the second round. Um But I think as far as the regular quarterbacks in this draft go right now, if the Jets choose to stay at two and take a a shot at Zach Wilson, look, you're probably not going to get a chance. Even with the extra picks you have, you're probably not going to get a chance to get a quarterback as good or better than Zach Wilson if you don't get Zach Wilson at number two this year. So uh, and and look, we're still seven weeks away from the draft, and it's it. There's going to be a lot of of useless prattle, uh, you know, said, spoken, written over the next seven weeks about what the Jets should do. But you know, as I sit here right now, uh, Paul, uh, this far away from the draft, the most common sense thing to me is the Jets trading Darnold for an early to mid two, and uh, and staying there at number two and picking Zach Wilson.
2: As long as we're going useless prattle and speculating this far away from the draft, another scenario that's one with the Jets is maybe to drop down to eight in a trade with Carolina or nine in a trade with Denver. The third best quarterback or probably the fourth best quarterback will be available at eight or nine. And that's a scenario that I think is really even more likely than that trade for Deshaun Watson.
1: Yeah, that's that's something that would give, as you mentioned earlier, that if the Jets choose to trade down with Carolina or Denver, if they want to move up and be very, very aggressive and try to get Zach Wilson, that you know, probably the market value going from two to eight or two to nine, probably the market value would be next year's one plus a two E this year, next year. So if you're the Jets and you feel comfortable either with Sam Darnold or you love the depth of the quarterbacks and you would take any of the top four, let's say, um, then that's a trade that I would be comfortable in making if I was Joe Douglas. But, um, you know, because that would obviously leave the Jets with uh, two ones this year and three ones next year along with an extra two either this year or next. So in any case, I think, but I think the most important thing is, you know, Paul, I've seen teams in the past get drunk on draft picks and acquire, acquire, acquire draft picks. And for the jets, it's smart. Okay. Because they need so much on their roster, but rather than getting drunk on draft picks, I would like them to be, uh, to to have three beers on draft picks, and then get the and then get the quarterback who you really want, Zach Wilson, uh, rather than just get this enormous stash of draft choices, and still not be positive about the most important player on your team, and that's quarterback.
2: There's a Monday's article correlating uh, alcohol consumption with draft needs <laughs> and what teams ought to do. And there is the very real. Uh, scenario two, where they go elsewhere uh, at number two, address another need, and see what they have in Sam Darnold.
1: I mean, it, it, I, I'm sure it's not impossible if you're Joe Douglas to say, there are three wide receivers in this draft who are worth a top five pick. And whoever you like, Smith or Waddle or um, – Um, Who who am I forgetting? But there's three wide receivers, obviously, in this draft who are going to go very high. I just think, you know, to me, Paul, and I made this point in the column, I'm just not sure that with the depth of receiver in recent years, I'm not sure it's very smart to take one with a top five pick. It'd be one thing if that's the last thing you need on your roster if you're just missing that one piece the Jets aren't if I were the Jets staying where I am I would take one of the two top tackles and then use the 23rd pick in the draft to get the best available receiver maybe Kadarius Tony from Florida because I think that you've seen it you know you saw Justin Jefferson get picked in the 20s last year um, and you've seen so many receivers come off the board late. Look at, you know, uh, Terry McLaurin go in the third round, and and DK Metcalf at the tail end of the second round. So if I am, if I'm the Jets, I, I if I stay and pick a non-quarterback at number two, it's going to be one of those two tackles that everybody thinks is a, you know, top ten to twelve pick.
2: And as you pointed out in your article, going defense in the top 10 this year, uh, unlike years past, it is not a very good option, at least for this year.
1: No, there's no Chase Young. Um, you know, the more I have looked into it, there's a very good chance that the top six, seven, eight players in his draft are going to be offensive players because uh, I will assume that. The first offensive player picked is likely, not certain likely, uh, to be one of the two corners. Caleb Farley, the opt-out from uh, Virginia Tech, uh, or Patrick Sertan, the second from Alabama, who had a very good year at Alabama, but we'll see. I mean, I think every year I kind of think that this is a beauty in the eye of the beholder draft, but I think it's probably even more more that this year for a very simple reason. Because there are so many teams that are gonna have so many differing opinions. I mean, I wrote about Gregory Russo, the defensive end from Miami, who essentially, if you you look at him, he's played one year of college football, and in his last three years, he's only played one year of football. He redshirted his first year, and last year he opted out. So here's a guy who's played, whatever, 13 games. In the NFL or in major college football, and he was great. But here's a 20 year old guy who somebody is going to give 15 million guaranteed to, and just I just think there's a lot of people I talk to around the NFL who are uneasy with that kind of scouting and these kinds of economics. But Paul, let's uh, let's transition if we can now into our conversations this week. Um, we're going to start off with. Uh, the coach of the Packers, uh, Matt LaFleur. And and I really uh, ended up talking to LaFleur quite a bit about the things he's learned from this past season. And uh, I think one of them that everyone is going to focus on is, what did he learn from that last drive uh, of the season when uh, Aaron Rodgers got the ball taken out of his hands on fourth down?
3: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
1: But anyway, here we go with Matt LaFleur, the coach of the Green Bay Packers. Back on the podcast, so happy to be joined by Matt LaFleur, the Green Bay Packers head coach. Uh, has had a great first two years with the Packers uh twin 13 and three seasons i'm sure he wished in both cases he could have gone further in each season uh, but anyway matt very happy to uh to have you on the podcast how are you
4: i'm doing pretty well peter how are you doing
1: everything is going mm-hmm. about as well as it could be in this weird time it looks like we're or you are headed into another year of sort of uncertainty as far as off-season program and 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 all that goes do you know anything yet about what you're going to be able to do with your players this offseason as uh, as we're in the early days of March
4: no I think we're all kind of anticipating having the virtual offseason but you know if we're able to get them back in Green Bay I mean that'll, that'll be a big time plus for really for everybody in the National Football League and I think even our players just to some normalcy back to their lives I I think it's always a good thing.
1: But as of now you're sort of you at least have a plan in place to uh to do virtual the same as you had last year.
4: Yeah we'll be prepared either way um like I said we're we're, we're kind of anticipating that the virtual plan um it was it was you you learned a lot going through it last year just how, how how you can do and, and get the information to our guys, and I really think if you you talk to most coaches around the league, you learned a lot about yourself as a teacher and and how you communicate. Because we were constantly kind of, at least the way we did it, having a lot of uh, producing basically videos for our guys, and you'd go back and rewatch them, and 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 it gave you some some good perspective on on how you come across as a teacher.
1: John Lynch told me that. One of the interesting things about doing the past year mostly virtually or much of it virtually with his players and, and in his uh, bailiwick with scouts and the organization is that, as he said, we learned how to do some things better. Um, and we understand that now we probably are going to do some scouting things and scouting meetings maybe even the aligning of the draft board virtually. What would you say you've learned uh, from the last 12 months about how to operate in what is a very, very different time and place?
4: Yeah, just, uh, well, certainly we we learned some new things from... Uh, a teaching perspective and how to incorporate more technology and what we're doing and, and try to make it competitive and fun. Because I think a lot of our guys, they, they want to compete and whether it's was using Kahoot quizzes or, or different forms of, uh, you know, quizzes to allow them to compete and, and, and get the information to them. But it, it really frees you up, you know, going, we just went through a hiring cycle here as well. And just the ability to, to, have uh, many different interviews without bringing people necessarily into the building. And, and, you know, I thought that was a great process. It's just, you you learn so much and just how much uh, technology is out there for you to communicate in in an efficient way uh, going through what we've gone through for the last, over the last year. Let's
1: talk about your new defensive coordinator, Joe Barry. How how, how many, how often did you talk to him before hiring him? And were any of those conversations actually in person?
4: You know, we didn't do any in person. Um, but I, I want to say we had probably four or five conversations. Uh, just, you know, we were pretty thorough with, with that hiring process because I know it's such a big time hire for us. Um, and it's it really the way we were set up, it allowed us to talk to nine different candidates. And uh, really, it was just such an informative process. And you, you realize how many great coaches are out there that are available, um, even with the timing of, of everything that went down.
1: Might you adopt some of those procedures for the future when you have to get a coach? Uh, Hire assistant coaches.
4: Oh, absolutely. I think it just allows you access to so many more people. Again, it's, it's, it was super efficient in terms of being able to talk to multiple guys in in one day. Whereas if you bring somebody in, into your building, typically you're only going to have, you know, one or two, two guys that you can talk to in a, in a specific day. So I just thought the efficiency of it all, just with the technology these days. was really good for us. Um,
1: Let's talk about two events in the very recent past. One is uh, J.J. Watt signing with uh, the Arizona Cardinals. I'm just curious. I remember when the Packers uh, practiced against Houston a couple of years ago, he was like a kid who, uh, you know, kind of an altar boy at church who would become the, you know, the priest at that church. I mean, he just, he was so thrilled to be on hallowed ground. Did you ever get to first or second base with Watt or was it because of the money? Was it so totally out of, uh, out of the realm of possibility for you guys?
4: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Goody handles most of that stuff. Yeah. Um, our GM, Brian Gutekunst, but it's just, um, Certainly we, I think we explore every option to make our team better. And certainly this year with, you know, the, the cap situation, there's going to be a lot of tough decisions that go on and it, it, everything's about choices. And, um, in order to bring a guy of, of that caliber, getting paid, that kind of money, you would have to make some other tough decisions on your football team. And I just, again, you explore everything, but, um, You know, obviously, it it didn't work out for us.
1: You know, it's so curious what you say because, you know, the Arizona Cardinals were not in great cap shape either. And, you know, in sort of in deciding to do that, that decision basically knocks a good young pass rusher, Hassan Reddick off their team. So I think probably more than any other year, that I've seen it in recent years because, um, you know, the salary cap is gonna be lower. You have to make decisions that automatically are going to impact players that you might have wanted to keep. So take me into your building now and tell me what the last month has been like when you have really started to have to make some of these tough decisions as you're on the verge of free agency
4: you know, th- these conversations take place daily. And if you ask me, depending on uh, what time of the day, you, you I might give you a different answer every time in terms of just what I believe we should do. Uh, there is no right answer. And, and again, there's, there's a lot of tough decisions. I look at the guys that we have that are coming up on free agency, and certainly we want them all back. Um, I know not only are they great players, but They're great team guys, and that's something that we're always looking for here. Is, is you know, guys that are selfless that will put the team first. And so it's it's um, like a double whammy when you lose such a great player plus a great team guy. But again, you know, we'll we'll do everything in our power to to try to get as many of these guys back as possible. But it's just um, probably improbable that we can get everybody back.
1: Do you get a sense right now that in the next week or so that we're probably all going to be a little bit shocked at some of the names that we see out on the street?
4: Yeah, I think that's the reality of where we're at right now. Um, I think there's going to be some opportunities there for teams to pick up really good players. Um, And it might not even be in the next week. It could be prior to the start of the season, but um, you know, there's just so much uncertainty going on right now in terms of, we don't even know what the final cap number is going to be. And obviously that's going to have huge implications on everybody's roster.
1: I've always thought that some of the people who handle free agency best are the people who sit on the sidelines in the first week. And basically they wait to uh, until some of the crazy money is spent. And yeah. I don't mean crazy money like it's a dumb deal. I just mean that money that people are a little bit surprised about Yeah, you know, I've always thought Bill Belichick handles free agency even though he's had a lot of misses they handle free agency well because they never really get swayed in the first few days of free agency you find that takes a certain amount of discipline to be able to do that
4: yeah I think so uh, but also just you know knowing your roster knowing what's out there trying to anticipate some of the potential moves that could be coming along the way. I think, you know, just in my time here with with Goody, he does as good a job as anybody I've ever been around in in regards to having such a great handle on everything. And, um, you know, just making sound decisions that give us the best chance to, to go out there and have success.
1: You have much of a gut feeling, however it happens whether Aaron Jones is back with the Packers in 2021.
4: Uh, those are those are the conversations that are ongoing. Uh certainly again we definitely want want him back here. Um uh, I know from especially from a coaching perspective just you look at the production he's been able to do uh produce over these last 2 years uh not only in the run game but in the pass game as well and Again, he's one of those guys, team first guy, always rooting for, whether it's another runner like Jamal or A.J. Dillon, just uh, he's a selfless guy and and has done so many great things. And he's a big reason why we've had so much success over the last two years.
1: Um, The other sort of uh, recent history question I want to ask you is about your season Uh, and you know, most people would look at a 13 and three season, which you've had two of those in a row. Um, you know, you've had the the best debut, uh, really of any Packers coach in that storied franchise history. And I, I'm sure that you're, you're happy with that. You know, going 13 and three is, uh, is, is pretty good. But do you in any way, uh, are you able to enjoy that when you know that the last two years you've fallen short of the Super Bowl?
4: Yeah, it's it's uh, funny because if you asked me, probably before I got the job, hey, you're going to go 13 and three in your first two years. Uh, yeah, you'd sign up for that. But ultimately, only one team's happy at the end of the year, and unless you're hoisting that Lombardi Trophy, there is some disappointment. And I think especially. When you look at this season, how we were able to to click and in, in really in, in all three phases, I think, you know, as the season progressed, uh, certainly our defense got much improved um, and really gave us a chance in that NFC championship game to, to be able to claw our way back in that game and have an opportunity to potentially win it at the end. But um You know it's just it it was a disappointing ending there's no there's no getting around that and the tough part i think just like in any other year you're you're starting back at 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 uh level one and and you got to go earn it and i think that's the mindset the mentality that we have to have um i the one thing that is tough is we were a pretty connected team and like we talked about there's going to be some tough decisions that that have to be made, uh, unfortunately, with the cap situation. And, you know, it's, it's how can you recreate that magic, that team chemistry that I think is so imperative in, in being able to put together a winning football team. And uh, But there, there's going to be a lot of work to be done between now and, and the start of the season in order to, to give us a chance to get back to that point.
1: You know, I thought you were very Kind of philosophical uh, after the game against Tampa, which had to have been obviously an agonizing way to lose. But it's one of those things.
4: Bringing that up, Peter. Thanks.
1: Yeah, well, you're welcome. You're welcome. But it's one of those things that, in my opinion, you know, you had, I thought, the right sort of reaction to it at the end of the game, which was. Hey, obviously, if I had known we weren't going to get the ball back and I'm paraphrasing you and you may have said this a couple of days later, you know, obviously you would have made a different call. But isn't that the life of a head coach, you know, and, and don't you have to basically understand that when you go into that job, that some decisions you're going to make are not going to work out and some are. It's just you have to base it on all the things you know at that time.
4: Yeah, I think I think that's life in general, but specifically in this league, when every decision you make uh, and everything that you do out there on the field, whether you're a coach or a player, is going to be under a microscope, and that's that's just the reality of it. That's nothing we're going to shy away from. And shoot, I wish we had a crystal ball to to know the outcomes. Um, but we're always going to trust our process and how we do things. And, you know, unfortunately it didn't work out. And and I think from every situation, whether it's successful or it's a failure, you have to learn from it and you have to move on and you've got to try to use that information in, in moving forward. And if you ever get in that situation again and how it can help maybe change that outcome
1: you have any discussions about that particular decision with Aaron post season post game or anything
4: oh absolutely we we always talk about everything and and how we can do things better uh you know i think one thing that that you you definitely learn is maybe my communication or i know my communication with him it should have been better in that situation maybe on the third down and and we do something a little bit different or whatever it may be just because I know his mindset was hey I got four downs right here right how that dictates just the decision everybody makes and and again it comes down to communication and and that's something that I've got to learn from and, and be better with him
1: I think the other thing about the end of that game that really struck me and I talked to uh Todd Bowles about it a couple of days later and that is that they're secondary they're so young you know mm-hmm. and they got so much better as the season went on and they were not these 22 23 year old, they, they still were 22 23 24 years old but they were so much better than than they had been and the other thing that Bowles told me is that What was interesting about the end of that game is that those guys, most of them have never heard of the frozen tundra (laughs) or, you know, where are we going this week? Green Bay, a couple of guys on their team had no idea that it was this storied place. It's just the next game they're going to play on the schedule, you know, and it was probably going to be really cold. And I guess I think that's the advantage sometimes of, of having young players, you know, they don't have that sort of institutional knowledge. Sure.
4: I wish it was a little bit colder that day too. Was, <laughs> yeah, we've had a really mild winter around here, unfortunately. It's especially when you, you know you have every playoff game coming through Lambeau, um, that certainly is an advantage for us. And and you want it as cold as possible and as windy as possible because you know our guys really embrace that. Yeah.
1: Uh, Matt, we'll end with this. But when you took this job, obviously everybody had questions about how your relationship with Aaron Rodgers was going to go. And you know, just from the outside, it appears as though uh, it's been an excellent relationship. And particularly this last year when he throws 48 touchdown passes and you win 13 games, he wins the MVP. what would you say has been sort of one or two of the keys that have made, your relationship with Rogers good and and able to kind of grow in the right direction?
4: Well, I think it all starts with the communication and and being available and and, uh, it's been a, a really collaborative process, I would say, in regards to how we've operated on offense. And certainly when you have a quarterback of his caliber, you want to listen to him because he's he's been through a lot. He's seen a lot. Obviously, he's played the game at the highest of levels. And so I, I think just, you know, as, as we continue to move forward, it, it's just making sure that the communication is always on point and that we're always on the same page. And I think you really saw that happen at a much higher level this this past year in regards to the work that we put in into the offseason. I think not only Aaron, but, uh, you know, Nathaniel Hackett, does an unbelievable job of he's our office coordinator of, of really getting us all on the same page and Luke Getze our quarterback coach. And so it's its a total team effort and certainly Aaron, I mean, he's the one out there, there on the field uh, making everything come to life, so to speak. So uh, we always want him a part of that process.
1: Matt LaFleur, head coach of the Green Bay Packers. Thanks so much for taking the time. Good luck in a crazy offseason. And uh, all you have to do is go 13 and three again. So no, no big deal.
5: Yeah. Thanks a
4: lot, Peter. I appreciate you having me on.
3: guaranteed. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one Mc Crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
1: And now my conversation with Brad Holmes the rookie GM of the Detroit Lions. Back in the podcast, so happy to be joined by the new general manager of the Detroit Lions, Brad Holmes. And and Brad, I'll I'll just tell you, a long time ago, when Bill Parcells was nearing the end of the line of his coaching career in the NFL, I once asked him about, uh, you know, the jobs that either he never got or maybe he wished he would have had. And he said, you know what? He goes, the Detroit Lions. He goes... (laughs) I always loved the Lions, and I always thought that the Lions were a sleeping giant. So I I say that to you, and what do you think when I
5: say that? Well, you know, Bill knew something, and he he knew a lot from what a lot of other people has mentioned as well, is that, you know, going through the process um, after, uh, you know, some people said it prior to, but After I was given the job, um, it was so much more responses and comments of how great of a franchise and how great this is even before I started my first day. So I got the job on a Wednesday and then flew back home to Atlanta and then really didn't come back here for my introductory uh, introductory press conference till that following Monday. But during that time from like Wednesday to Sunday, it was so much of. Detroit Lions is just and they start talking about all the phenomenal things about the franchise. And obviously, during the interview process, you know, uh, you know, meeting Sheila and Rod and, you know, um, Sheila and the whole Ford family is just, you know, they've just been phenomenal. And, you know, uh, individually, Sheila had a positive impact. But since I've been on the job, it has been a dream. Uh, It actually has, obviously, it's been a dream job of mine. It's been a dream to always be a GM. But, you know, uh, being in this franchise and particularly, I see what everybody says about how great of a franchise it is, how great of an organization it is. And it starts from the very top uh, with, with ownership in the Ford family. And, 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 and Sheila. So um, I got a great it's all about people. You've heard a lot. You know, it's a people business and to work with great people, um, even, you know, when from Sheila to Rod Wood, you know, to Mike Disner and Dan and I, um, you know, it's just been a dream working with Dan as well. So, you know, I understand exactly what they've been saying now.
1: You realize, of course, that you were set up for success for the rest of your life. You majored in journalism in college, so <laughs> I gotta hear that story. What What are you doing, majoring in journalism at North Carolina A and T?
5: You know, it's funny is that. So my mom was in education. You know, um, you know her whole her whole career. You know, she's PhD in education, a long time at University of South Florida and HCC, and you know, I actually started off. in in accounting and, you know, it was actually a business marketing and I had to take an accounting class. And it was just like, I said, mom, I don't know what I'm going to do. So then she said, you know, well, when you took your SATs, you always scored so high in the verbal stuff, you know, as opposed to the numbers. And I said, you were exactly right. And so she was like, well, what do you think about communication? You've always had strong writing skills, verbal skills. And I said, like, can you major in it? And she's like, yeah, and just try mass comm. And it was the best advice that I ever received. And if she hadn't given me that advice, I mean, my grades immediately flipped, immediately, dean's List, cum laude. But without that degree, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't be here. I can't say that I would be here because I had to start off and get my foot in the door as a PR intern, um, even before the NFL. You know, starting off as a media relations trainee with the Atlanta Hawks for a year, and then meeting the NFL PR people, um, at the all-star game in Oh three. So if I didn't have, if I didn't make that decision for journalism, there's no telling where I'd be at this point in my career. That's really funny.
1: You know, uh, Andy Reed, uh, when he went to Brigham Young was a, uh, wanted to be a sports writer. He said his goal was to be, a uh, you know, to cover football for sports illustrated and, uh, so I've always been able to hold, hold, him, hold him off and keep my job over the years when, when I was at SI. But, you know, the other thing about your past that I think is really interesting is that you were given significant authority fairly early on. A lot of guys get into scouting and, you know, they got to put in 12, 15, 18, 20 years before they really climb the ladder. Okay, mm-hmm. but you and the Rams—you really started to climb at an at an early age, and you got a DM job obviously at an early age. Tell me why you think you were able to start that climb pretty quick with the Rams.
5: Well, I, I will say um, first of all, like when we were talking about how you know so many people through your journey will point out certain things that you may not even have realized. So you know um obviously just keep my head down just going off of the passion that i had for football and even even getting into scouting from the pr is that it was a fairly easy transition because i do have a passion for riding but even i i even a higher passion for football so to start just evaluating players and writing scouting reports was 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 ideal but you know i will say when um when 2012 came or I'd even say before that, when I was an NFS combine scout, you know, Jeff Foster, who was the president combine, you know, he had me start cross checking the Southeast region. And I was doing the Midwest area. And usually you do a different cross check area, but Jeff has told me afterwards that he saw something in me from an evaluation standpoint, he says, you know what, I'm gonna have you cross check the Southeast instead of the upper Midwest. And so I just started doing it and because of that, Then that's when we had a regime change. Billy Devaney put me down in the Southeast, you know, as an area scout. And then that's when Les Snead started to see me, you know, because he was still with the Falcons. And so when Les Snead came on board in 2012, he had known about my work and seen me operate previously. So he just told me, sent me down his office after the draft. He said, Brad, I believe in you. I know what you can bring. You did a great job in the meetings. And so then he promoted me to be a national scout, did that for a year and then just kind of kept climbing ever since. But I will say when I got the director job, I was so happy of just being able to get to that level, you know, at the age I was, but didn't really know everything else that entailed about the job. I was like, okay, now I'm a college director. And but it was so much more about the management process. And, you know, you know, the the leadership process. And so, th- and those were things that I had to learn pretty quickly and, um, and had to improve on and, and sharpen my saw on. But I think all those experiences really kind of led to me, if you say, climbing a ladder fairly quickly. I
1: think one of the interesting things, and the reason why you were such a strong candidate this year around the league, is that when people look at the depth of the Rams drafts, over the last few years and they see a cooper cup in the third round and obviously him getting a big second contract john johnson picked right after cooper cup in that draft Mm -hmm. Um, he's going to get a good contract somewhere i don't know where and then because you weren't able uh because you just kept trading once you weren't able to to have that sort of soft landing of a one all the time you know you're able to figure out you know hey we can get a joe Noteboom at the end of the third round yeah uh, you know we can get a taylor rap at the end of the second round and we can we can use you know the 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 middle and lower rounds and i i want to know obviously every person who runs the draft says, hey, you know, you got to have a deep draft. You can't just hit on the ones and the twos. But tell me how you learned that, you know, the middle rounds are as important as the high rounds.
5: Yeah, so um, that's, a, that's a great question. And, you know, going into it, I will say that, you know, obviously rooting, set all rooted from the golf trade. And so when, when we traded for golf, you know, um, with the Rams, we traded for golf, you know, that's when you knew it's like, okay, we're spending the resources, the future resources. We won't, we will be without, you know, a first round pick. And we weren't quite where, uh, where, you know, the Rams are now from a roster standpoint at that time. But what it forced us to do is it forced us to really scrutinize those middle round picks. You know, I'd say even more heavily than you do the first round guys or what we, you know, call those guys the tier one group so when you're scrutinizing those groups it really teaches you that not only how you can really win in the actual draft but the other part of it is that when you know after the golf picks were you know utilized for the first round and then it got into the brandon cooks trade and it got into the the sammy Watkins trade, and these second round picks marcus peters these first round picks, second round picks started going out. Well, then now it's like, okay, now our roster, the Rams roster is at a certain point where the Rams thought that they could actually sacrifice those top picks and then really hit on those middle round guys. And it really came down to, you know, really not throwing darts. You know, sometimes you kind of get to a point in the middle rounds where it's like, okay, this is a calculated dart. Not sure it's going to work or not, but, really honing in on, okay, these are reliable players, like Cooper Cup, John Johnson, investing in reliability, Uh, Joe Nobun, investing in reliable Taylor. I mean, those things are like, let's forget about, you know, the first round, uh, let's call it the uh, beauty pageant part of it, where it has to be the height, weight, speed has to be there because the grades on Taylor Rapp, for example, were in the first round, you know, and, we would have been comfortable taking them at I believe we're at, you know, 30, 31 or whatever. So when he ran the slow 40 time, you come back it's like this guy's still a good football player, whatever he ran on his 40. So just I think that shows up scrutinizing those guys even more than you scrutinize the top piece because you have to, because the talent may be a little bit lesser, but the intangibles are screaming at you so much higher and just investing in your reliability.
1: You know, I thought that one of the things that was uh, interesting is when, um, you know, is when you get hired and when basically Sheila Ford Hamp comes out at your press conference and says, and I'll quote, that your embrace of the, f- or his embrace of the fusion of analytics and scouting intuition in his approach to drafting blew us all away. So, that i really want to focus on you know there are a lot of guys in your position who might say oh yeah yeah we got a big analytics department and we 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 love analytics but at the end of the day they might not really pay as much attention to pro football focus as maybe they 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 might want their bosses to think so tell me what you think of analytics deep down and how is it a part of what you do?
5: Yeah, that you know, I I think it's a big component, and you know, the the as the years have gotten on, it's just becoming a bigger and bigger component uh, in terms of you know how analytics are utilized. And when when I speak about the the fusion of the analytics and the scout intuition, is that you know. There's there's still, you know, personnel members to this day that are still a little bit questionable in Larry. So when you just immediately go with, you know, PFF, you know, or next gen or whatever, and you start throwing those numbers, you might still get some some skewed question marks of like, well, how do we know that that's legit? Or how do we know like, hey, look, I'm used to just watching the tape. Well, what I talk about the fusion of the scout intuition is that the scouts can use their own intuitive data in an analytical form. And so when you start making that fusion, then that creates a little bit more buying for the uses of the analytics. So then when you start looking at that data and it says, hey, look, like this is an analytical piece of data, but you're the one that actually put this, you know, good level speed in there or you the one that put this numerical value on his explosiveness so that is your intuition but we're using it in an analytical sense so you know i think that that's been huge to kind of create buying which you know was utilized at, w- with the rams that really you know opened my eyes to it but the other part of the analytics is just the accountability piece of it you know and you know i'm i'm huge on accountability but I've always said, like, if 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 your eyes, if if your eyes are telling you one thing and the analytics are telling you something completely different, let's not be stubborn and just say, you know, whoa, no, 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 no. No, that, that's just some computer that's spitting out that number. No, you better find out why. You better find right. out why is that analytics piece saying something completely different than what you're seeing and and find out. You know, when you don't think a guy's fast and runs a four-three. 40 at the combine or his pro day, don't just ignore it and say, oh, I know my eyes didn't see a 4'3 guy on tape. No, he actually did it. <laughs> like he yeah. actually did it. Yeah. So, you know, let's just go back and, and be sure. And You know, you, you can use the analytical uh, data the same way.
1: Brad, that, that brings me to my question about how exactly you're going to be able to do your job this year. You know, this is clearly your first draft as general manager. It's obviously a very important draft for you. You guys pick seventh. You finally have a high pick for the first time since uh, probably forever. Uh, you know, with the team you've been on.
5: Hopefully, but, it's the last one, Peter.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it won't be the last one, judging by <laughs> the, the trade that you can't discuss yet. But, but what I find really interesting in talking to people around the league is that. There's a lot of people who think this is going to be a really tough year. You know, and I used in my column this week uh, the example of Gregory Russo. You know, he goes to the University of Miami, uh, was a wide receiver and a safety in high school. He goes to Miami. He gets hurt right away as a freshman. He has the red redshirt. Plays one season his red shirt freshman year, 15 and a half sacks at Miami. Great year. And then his third year, he opts out, and then he declares for the draft. And so, you know, now you – you know, this guy, you're going to draft this guy who is not – on draft night, he won't have played a football game for 500 days. He's 20 years old right now. Somebody's (laughs) going to give him 15 million bucks and say, hey, be ready for the start of this season. You're a really important piece to our puzzle. I mean – how do you do that? And tell me about the problems of this particular year as you see them.
5: Well, that's a, those are all great points. Um, that, that, that does make it a little bit more difficult. Or if I say, you know, you got to do more work than you normally would, would have to do because, you know, when you're dealing with guys that hadn't played in a while, you know, you're going to have to deep dive a little bit more and be sure, and I think if you're embracing uncertainty, um, like I always try to do, if you're embracing uncertainty, then you know that that should drive you to be as sure as you can be, and not be overconfident into just saying, "Oh well, Greg Sue, I saw him get 15 sacks a couple of years ago, so I know it's got to be the same." So you know, whatever approach or methods you utilize to 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 be sure, you know is going to recall for a lot more work but I will say I've always been I've always wondered like you know if the if the process was ever reversed in terms of let's just say hypothetically if if the if the combine and the pro day circuit came first and then the football season came last and then you draft and so I was like I always wondered like how different would the draft be if the last thing you saw was football. And so it's a little bit like without the normal combine this year, where I actually do think it's a little bit more like, you know, the pro days, the pro day circuit is kind of starting now. And then you still got free agency and then you'll hop in April and then you're going to draft that in the next month. Well, it's a different process where you're going to have to trust your evaluation skills And that's the fun part I see about it is that I think you are going to be looking at more of just drafting football players off of what they've done on film, you know? It's,
1: you know, I hope that it works out that way for, for everybody. I just, I wonder really how you judge a player who's played and I don't know, I'm guessing maybe 13 college games and has been off basically for a year and a half. That really has to make it tough. The one other part of this particular season that I think is going to be difficult for so many guys who are real scouts is that you didn't get to go to campuses really this yeah. year. And, you know, you're going to get this one shot at pro day. I talked to one general manager over the weekend who is worried that their level of information won't be the same this year as in a normal season. Does that concern you?
5: Yeah, no, that's that that that's that's real. And I think everybody's gonna have to um play the cards that they've been dealt this year. And you know, um, I do see from that aspect, although um it might be a little less information um going into it, um, but you know, it it should still provide some level ground in terms of If people are lacking information, then everybody's lacking information. So it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier is that you're going to really have to trust your evaluations and your scouts and really lean on them and really do the deep dives. And then even with the guys, you know, your your initial question is that, you know, the guys that has opted out, you know, it's almost like you're going to have to make a decision or if you're going to take each one case by case, you know, or if you. Say if you uh, say that one guy's getting punished because he opted out, then are all the opt-outs are gonna get viewed that same way, you know, um, just because. So it's gonna be fascinating which approach, you know, every every team takes in terms of viewing these opt-outs. But I definitely, just because of how the combine is and, you know, not having the normal combine and then even the pro days there's stipulations and restrictions on pro days, so I mean, um, I think everybody's gonna have to again play the hand that they're dealt with a little bit less information. Um, but the tape is the tape, and so that's you know um, we've always said that the answers, the answers to the test are on there. You just gotta just find them.
1: It's a good good attitude to have. Um, two other things, quick. One is. I'm sure that you're well aware of the Lions' recent history. And uh, there are so many fans there who uh, have probably vacillated between giving up and are excited that there's a new regime. And I wonder, what do you say to fans who will say, "We, we haven't won a playoff game in 28 years. We have never won the reconfigured NFC North uh we've we've only won double digits twice in the last 25 years this has been a totally moribund franchise so what do you say to lions fans to give them hope
5: well i'll say the same thing that i that i said you know in you know my introductory press conference and other times is just that you know just know that because the because that fan base is so passionate and through all the ups and downs it actually drives Dan and myself even more just to make sure that we can produce and bring back a consistent winner. And um, just know that uh, Dan or myself is not, you know, sleeping well at night until we're actually going to able to actually provide that. Um, You know, I've told the fans, trust our process and just trust our process that we are working as hard as we can to get this thing turned around and then produce a consistent winner. That's going to be consistently competitive to compete for a championships. And, you know, that's Dan and I's focus uh the, this whole time. But again, one pride deserves that, you know, the, the, the city of Detroit deserves that because they are so passionate. I've been to other games here where the place is packed regardless, and they're showing up through and through and, they deserve a a, a winner. And that's what Dan and his focus are 100% to provide that and produce that because the city of Detroit deserves that for sure.
1: Brad, I'm going to end with this. Uh, Over the last year, your job has changed uh, drastically um, in in the time of COVID-19. And I'm asking people around me, what do you think over the last year either you have been able to do a little bit better uh, because of, quite honestly, having one hand tied behind your back a lot of times. But is there any way you think you've been better? Is there anything you have learned during COVID that you think can benefit you uh, as a scout and general manager going forward?
5: Yeah, that is a great question. Um, It was actually... um We were having a conversation about the silver linings of COVID and how those those things have been actually a positive. And we were talking more on a personal note in terms of, you know, being, you know, better fathers, being better husbands, being in in those positions. But but from a football perspective, I do think that it has taught you that, you know, you always trusted your scouts and you've already, you've always took a collaborative approach, but it forces you to dive into that even more. And to really, you know, truly understand that, you know, hey, look, because of COVID, uh, you're not gonna have all the answers. And so you just have to know that, you know, because of the situation that you've been put in, that everybody on your staff, has a piece of of that answer and so you're going to have to trust and use the collaborative effort to come up with the right solution for the organization so it's actually forced you to lean even more where that was already a superpower in terms of trust your scouts and leaning on and taking collaborative effort but you got to even bolt it even higher in, in that regards because of the situation that we're in and then also those auxiliary resources and those um those supportive supplemental resources with the analytics, with your sources. Um, it's fortunate because you're not traveling to campuses that you have to actually utilize a little bit more of a six degrees of separation with sources to try to connect even deeper to, you know, get more information to, you know, to, to get what you need to get the job done. So there are some silver linings and some positives that have come out of COVID in this pandemic era for sure.
1: Brad Holmes, general manager of the Detroit Lions, good luck uh, this year and good luck in making the Lions relevant again.
5: Thanks, Peter. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure.
1: And my thanks to Paul Burmeister of NBC Sports, Matt LaFleur of the Green Bay Packers, and Brad Holmes of the Detroit Lions. So this week, you might really enjoy my conversation with Daniel Jeremiah about the quarterbacks. Uh, Jeremiah is obviously the uh, NFL network, NFL draft guru, and he has studied the quarterbacks. So many people have these days, but I, he's got some very interesting observations about you know, what he likes about, particularly about Zach Wilson, which is interesting, and what maybe gives him a little bit of pause about some of the quarterbacks, including Mac Jones. You can find that if you look up my Football Morning in America column this week. It's right on the top of the column. And you can also find it at the NBC Sports YouTube page. It'll be right there out front that you can glean knowledge from Daniel Jeremiah. And that's it for this week's pod. We'll be back with another one next week uh, as we get into the teeth of free agency. And we also continue to prepare for the draft. The draft seven weeks away. Thanks a lot for listening this week. Have a great week, everybody.